everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to our uh, weekly restoration agriculture uh, webinar with the Economics Action Team, EAT, um, talking about forest ecology. I believe this is our fifth uh, official session that we're in this, and we're in for a special treat because uh, I don't know if you guys remember last week, the beginning of the, uh, of the webinar, we had a little banter going on, and there was uh, severe storms expected up north. Well, on Thursday, the day after the webinar, uh, the farm crew and uh, myself, my family, uh, took off and sought shelter at a local bowling alley because the storms are so severe here. We woke up the next morning to find out that uh, up in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness uh, in uh, northern and eastern Minnesota, there was a, a significant blowdown of trees, like several thousand acres of trees blown down, a couple people killed, a whole bunch of people injured. And so, of course, I immediately took off. We're talking about disturbance. This is absolutely perfect timing for, um, for this particular webinar. Uh, unfortunate circumstances with the uh, uh, catastrophes. I know how brutal it can be out in the uh, Boundary Waters when these storms come up. My boys and I were in uh, a series of 14 tornadoes once. They were probably 10 and 12 years old. One of the scariest things I experienced. So I'll show lots of pictures from up there. And remember again that uh, I'm presenting on actual topics out of uh, college-level forest ecology texts, um, but I'm coming from the perspective of a person who was originally turned on by tree crops, J. Russell Smith, the, uh, the need for humanity to figure out a permanent agriculture, some way that we can permanently inhabit this planet, not destroy it, actually enhance it, repair, restore ecosystems while providing ourselves with food, fuel, medicine, and fiber. Um, Early on, I discovered permaculture, uh, which the name itself is a contraction of the two words, permanent and agriculture. Um, and the phrase that has been one of my operating phrases uh, since I first read about permaculture was that the aim of permaculture is to create systems that are ecologically sound and economically profitable. And that's the whole gist of economics, ecological economics. Uh, if it's not ecological, it's not going to make business sense long term. And we might as well have an ecological economy and an economic ecology. Did I say that right or repeat myself? Um, David Holmgren started putting forth a list of principles that we unfold permaculture on the ground through a set of principles. We observe nature, imitate nature, natural patterns, and interact with uh, the systems. And that's basically what this whole uh, webinar series on forest ecology is, how on earth can we understand and how can we create systems um, that are based on observing nature and imitating uh, nature if we don't even know what we're looking for or, or what we're looking at. Um, so the rest of these principles, we'll talk about those through, through time. But for now, we're observing to, in order to imitate and interact with some of these texts. Way more texts than this are in use. I just only have pictures of these ones right now. Now, this may seem silly, and I know I've done this in a bunch of presentations before. But if we're going to observe nature and interact with it, we have to know the difference between an observation and a concept. I, I write about this in my book, um, Restoration Agriculture. Uh, 
An observation is something that you see here, taste, touch, smell, measure with instruments, derive through testing, and if I write down the protocol of what to do in order to observe a phenomena, and I give this protocol to you, and you follow the same procedure, you'll observe the same phenomena. You may call it by different terms or whatever, but you'll observe the same thing. It's repeatable. Uh, it's something that we have verified that you can verify, someone else can verify, where the concept is merely an idea. And a classic uh, uh, illustration of this is the word invasive species. Human beings are the only species that we know that has an idea called invasion. So when we see, when we use the concept invasion, like we're seeing through these uh, concept colored glasses, we don't actually see reality, we see an invasion. And so what we do is we fight against the invasion. We're actually doing work and doing inputs based on a false uh, view of reality because we're seeing our concept instead of reality. The other one is the word orchard, an apple orchard. If I say the word apple orchard, most people get an idea of what it looks like in their mind because we've seen it like these orderly rows of trees with nothing but grass, maybe you know, bare dirt in places underneath it. So here's these trees existing within this matrix of reality. And when nature does what it does, and it always does, uh, all of a sudden we see an insect come in. We've got a pest problem. We've got to spray against the pest. When diseases come through, we've got to spray against diseases. Well, there's no problem there. That's what nature does. There's pests and diseases and wind and all these different things that we're talking about are part of observable reality. And to all of a sudden fight against re observable reality in order to, to preserve our concept, our idea of what an orchard should be, it's foolish and it's a waste of uh, time, resources, money, and it's doomed to fail in the end, all it's had before. And if you're going to try to uh, establish a farm that looks like this one in the middle here. If you're trying to do that through a series of concepts that you have these ideas, I'm going to do an apple orchard here, I'm going to do a chestnut grove there, uh, you're not necessarily going to succeed as well as if you had just said, I am going to work with the observed natural plant communities of this place, manage the water, and accept feedback from all of these interactions as it changes through time. How we understand all those things is by having a good understanding, an intellectual understanding, emotional understanding of forest ecology, which is why we're going through all of this exercise. I wrote a book, buy it. Um, a lot of this is explained. The forest, the three-dimensional ecological system dominated by trees or woody vegetation that exists in a dynamic interaction. That's the whole key. It's a dynamic interaction. It is not static. It is not set in time. It's constantly moving, constantly changing, exchanging with the air, with the earth, and of course, biology is part of it, uh, uh, creatures, insects, and so on, pests and diseases. All plant communities change through time. In order to work with nature and interact with it and accept feedback from it, we need to know how it changes through the various different time scales, short term and long term. Now, ecosystem change occurring through um, the short term, which is decades to centuries, uh, is called succession the species will change. Notice this little field here, they've got their USDA terraces on it. If they start an alley cropping uh, system, planting rows of trees between their fields of whatever that is, corn or beans, over time the uh, numbers of species in that field will change because other weeds will come in in that row. Maybe they'll plant other species, grapes and currants and so on. The structure, the shape, the physiognomy of the whole system will change. The total biomass there will change over all that change, a short-term change, is called succession. This is a fascinating photo I found today while rummaging about putting this presentation together. 
This is a photo of uh, my house at New Forest Farm in southwest Wisconsin in 1996. Uh, the first winter in 1995-96, uh, we lived in the downstairs, uh, there's my cursor, with just the uh, foundation here. Uh, this was a outhouse. Our telephone was in, in a, uh, out in the chicken coop at the time. <laughs> Long time ago. Notice like hardly any vegetation back here. This has been a full year that everything's had to grass in. This was mostly abandoned crop fields up the top here. This was all pasture. This was all pasture. This grand old maple tree is still there, and this, this path going down the middle right here, this uh, vehicle path, this is still a state right away. This is the old Highway 56. Um, and look on the right, we see these little tree guards around some, uh, some trees here. I believe these in the front are hazelnuts, and that one back there is a chestnut. Some of the first plants we put in the ground. The system changes through time. This is uh, probably later on in the, uh, in the fall, out on the, this ridge here, you can see these uh, different fields. This would have been cover crop and squash or cucumbers, cover crop, squash and cucumbers, cover crop, squash and cucumbers. In the early years, we grew lots more uh, annual produce in order to cash flow uh, as the trees grew. And believe it or not, there's trees planted all out in these old overgrown pastures. There's trees planted between the uh, alleys of squash and so on. And then this is one of the first aerial photographs. I believe this was 2003. Notice there's no buildings out front here. This whole pattern of, uh, that we see on the ground is the water management pattern so that any water trying to go down this valley gets spread out to the ridges and it soaks in on the ridges. We'll talk a lot about that later on. Just five years after that uh, is when this next uh, aerial photo takes place. And you can see even, even in our own lives we go through succession. This house started as a concrete bunker, then we had a, a roof above it, but then we added on front and added on the side. Uh, we added on to the outhouse now is a woodshed and a mushroom propagating uh, building. So as our lives change through time, our, our, uh, I started this project when I was 30. I'm now over 50. Um, we have different abilities to, to work all day, different activity levels. We also have different financial means. We go through succession. And what's happening now is my sons are 20 and 22. They're almost old enough now to become signatories on the property, and it's time for them to become the property managers of it. And the biological community and the plants has changed. Uh, I have uh, some aerial photographs just from last year, and this area right in here is completely closed canopy, and you can't even see you can't even see the road. It's not completely closed because grass grows underneath it, but it's it's incredibly uh, closed in. And managing succession in our system is what it's all about. We want to be able to manage the direction uh, of succession so we know which trees will be our crop trees in 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, and so on. And we know what trees will be there to replace them. So we're taking a long-term view and a short-term view simultaneously. So we're, we're cash flowing with our short-term crops while always improving our resource base through time and knowing where we're going successionally. Um, the successional pathway of our, our anybody's ecoregion is mostly known. We know what plants will grow in your area. We know the general shape and pattern that ecosystems take, the physiognomy. Uh, and if you're in the desert, you're not going to want to try to grow a tropical rainforest um, unless you do a lot of site development and water management for you know hundreds of thousands of square miles, etc. But uh, what I what I found out when when putting this together, I was going to talk only about uh, succession tonight, and then I realized that 
succession just doesn't happen in this cute little process that you go from like rocks to lichens to herbs and shrubs and grass and you know this haste mat and jack pine black spruce aspen and balsam fir it doesn't just do that over time all by itself there's constantly these little insults to the system um, that happen in various different uh, ways and these are called uh, disturbances ecologically any kind of um, uh, I'll have some definitions later but any kind of um, change within the system is caused by some sort of disturbance and, and we'll go through some of those. <clears throat> I also went through this section kind of fast last night because this relates to both succession and disturbance is that uh, once upon a time the ranges of the native uh, flora and of course fauna uh, was radically different simply because there was ice all over the place um, and as the ice melted these different plant communities spread out from their central homelands of where they were and this this little map right here shows some of the directions of some like the spruce over here of, uh, white pines uh, beech and chestnut and the various different there would have been refugiums down here and over here these guys kind of move this way and that way um, what's fascinating about the movement of trees as populations is that's remarkably slow the smaller uh, seeded plants like aspen, birch, willow, uh, they can fly in the wind and they go zillions of miles, hundreds of miles anyways, and find a piece of bare dirt, a touchdown, and poof, they're growing again. And especially plants like, like uh, aspen and cottonwood and willow that propagate quite readily from the roots. They just send out root suckers all over the place. They can go way far afield in advance, but the heavier seeded trees you know, our fruits and our nuts, um, I think it was hickories, only moved on average about 117 meters uh, a, a year on average as they migrated through 10,000 years. So if we are actually entering a period of climate uh, change acceleration, our, our current plant communities don't have the ability to move fast enough to keep up with the changing uh, climate. And so that's part of where our role as restoration agriculture farmers comes into play is we uh, may be going out in, in advance of places, planting trees slightly out of zone, either too hot or too cold, um, in order to uh, get new little refugia established from which the population can spread from there forward. And we're doing the breeding subsequently to breed the plants that are now more site adapted way out of their zone, one, two, three zones out of their, out of their lead. Now, ecologists and foresters define disturbance to mean any kind of discrete observable event, identifiable event that can change the ecosystem. It changes their structure, the species composition, how the, how the ecosystem functions. It can be uh, the, the components, the, the landscape components, it can be the landforms change themselves like landslides, earthquakes. Um, obviously you can see here that this vegetation was intact, no longer is. Um, now these, these exposed uh, patches of soil will undergo succession. So there was first a disturbance and then succession occurs from there. Obviously volcanism. This forest here it got its life changed radically. Kaboom. Um, one of the things that we'll talk about later on that's uh, really significant for us as restoration agriculture um, people is that we are now going to be the ones that are setting up refugium, ecological refugium, uh, you know, biological genetic refugia of a wide diversity of species that we go out a zone or two ahead of time, or we go into abandoned land, or we go into land that's been, you know, catastrophically destroyed by 
earthquake, volcano, mudslide, or whatever, and set up a new node from which all these useful species can spread, uh, and we have plenty of food to feed ourselves and whatnot. Uh, that's how that's how these systems recolonize themselves. Only like within three years, they were finding um, fungus mycelium all through the uh, the um, volcanic debris out there, and then it was green the very next year. Flowers like you wouldn't believe. Amazing how fast it's revegetated. Disturbances includes um, uh, soil erosion, debris flow. Some of the, like you look over here in this stream here, some of this debris was picked up from somewhere else and deposited there. There can be floods where silt is spread out over, over uh, crop fields. Um, there was a, a, the Root River in Minnesota uh, a few years ago. There was a, a flash floods that occurred, and I saw a, uh, a big, huge tractor with you know articulated in the middle dualies front and back that was sticking two thirds up out of the mud. It was like buried easily. A third of it was buried as it rooted itself down into the mud. Uh, well, then uh, the floods continued. The tractor had to stay there. I don't know how you know, how the operator got out and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then the local gravel road washed out and it totally covered that field with you know three four inches of gravel. So here was this tractor stuck in. Uh, a nice muddy bottomland field with gravel on top of it. And if you look at this cut bank here on the stream, you can look at these successional layers of different flood debris that's been deposited. It's not just a clean soil development, soil profile, as if you're out in the middle of a, a you know a deep prairie looking at the soil change down to the subsoil and the uh, parent material. There's layers, different layers of different flood events depositing soil. <clears throat> Disturbance includes the disruption of the existing vegetation. There's of things that can disturb the vegetation. If you look around through this picture, you can see like over here and over here, over here, over here, there's like dead trees. For some reason, those individual trees got disturbed. Now there's an opening in the, in the um, forest canopy. Now a different kind of succession can occur in those openings because of that type of disruption. Glaciers obviously are very uh, disruptive. Uh, they can be quite fast actually. There, there was a uh, uh, one glacier I remember up in Alaska when I was living there that in a period of weeks it just like slid across a fjord and it blocked off a fjord and it trapped all kinds of dolphins and seals and fish back there until the lake filled up behind it and then the lake overtopped it and eroded through the ice and then it was open passage again to the ocean again. But obviously all of this, uh, all of this rock material totally crushed up. Plants now have to go through succession after this glacial disturbance. Um, some of the definitions, and you can footnote these and look them up if you want, for force that kills at least one canopy tree. We saw that in one of the pictures earlier. It can be the uh, mechanisms which limit the plant biomass by causing its partial or total destruction, which we'll see a lot of those, or events that make growing space available uh, to either survivors or new colonists. And think about this right here. This is really bizarre. I think we are living in a uh, societal disturbance that there are events going on that are making space and other resources available to survivors and new colonists. There are all kinds of opportunities for people who are taking an economics approach. Look at this, what we see here, this, this clear cut. This looks like serious hardcore destruction for mile and mile and mile and after mile after mile after mile. That's amazingly inexpensive real estate that uh, can provide a tremendous opportunity for us to go in do genuine ecological restoration uh, at a profit. We can purchase the place, uh, manage the water with, with terraces and swales and all that kind of stuff, 
plant our trees and start selling products the very first year and start alley cropping and selling annual products off of there. Now when flood, fire, disease, or pest outbreak kills organisms within the ecosystems, we want to understand how that system recovers and the organisms that will be there to replace those. Because if we're going to be planting ecosystems in our place, whether it's in your suburban front yard over a three million acre ranch, we want to know that when a natural disturbance happens, what's going to follow after this? How do we interact with that in order to obtain a yield? Or how do we go to this site and disturb it in some way so that we can obtain a yield? And then what do we have in place to continue yields forward into the future? We need to be constantly thinking about how to use disturbance, different types of disturbance, in order to accomplish our yield objectives and our sustainability objectives. Now, disturbances um, can be all different scales. They could be huge scale, like Mount St. Helens, for example, or like a comet, you know, slamming down into the uh, into the earth. I just uh, saw a presentation earlier in the spring at uh, Madison, Wisconsin, um, where they were talking about the the comet that basically finished the age of the dinosaurs. That when it hit, it would have put up a uh, enough heat would have gone off into the atmosphere that the temperature would have gone up to about 8,000 degrees for like three seconds. Well, that's not very long, but I mean, 8,000 degrees, that's, that's pretty hot. It's like almost like a nuclear weapon just boom, erasing life around the planet. That's a pretty major disturbance. Or you get down to something simple like a single tree blown down by the wind uh, and crashing on your building. Now, um, disturbance will affect, affect the physical site. It, it arranged the parent, parent material. If you look back here, the, the rock and the soil was disturbed. We'll see a lot of that uh, coming up. Uh, it creates new landforms, new shapes, there's new places for plants to get established. And what I, uh, right now, these are pictures of, of New Forest Farm, what I'm working with right now is light interactions uh, by selectively disturbing in an area, I'm opening it up for more light because it has to grow in order to feed the cows. Uh, and I also take the biomass, it's either it's building materials, poles, uh, mushroom substrat, substrate, firewood, and then the branches get chipped on the ground for, uh, for fungus and uh, additional carbon on the soil. So I'm playing with uh, thinning areas to let the light in. And what I need to know is understand what's here to replace what I removed in order to uh, continue having a, a continued harvest into the future. So in here in chestnuts, for example, as the chestnuts start to crowd each other out, uh, some uh, trees don't do as well as others. You can see in the middle here the grass is starting to um, to go away. It's not growing as vigorously where you still get light. We'll deal with these uh, light flecks later on. Actually, light flecks through a forest canopy are an amazing um, field of research. All you do is you put a light meter down and have it send uh, data to your computer. And as the sun goes through the day, all of a sudden it will measure, bleep, you know, all of a sudden this little you know, a beam of light comes through the forest canopy and moves on. Very significant in um, uh, forest energy dynamics. So with a little bit of disturbance, you can take a place like this, boom, and turn it into that. It's a radically different site. Some sort of disturbance, open it up. We have different heat and different light characteristics on that site. Obviously, different species composition, because you see there's now a lot of black locusts lying on the ground here, and there's a lot of uh, chestnuts that are standing free, dominating the site. Now, of course, exclusion of disturbance is its own kind of disturbance. This is a picture of some redwoods in um, what's now the Redwood National Park in California. And 
these are two photographs from the same exact place. I think it was only uh, 30 or 40 years different. And you can tell here's this tree here with a, with a hollow in it. And uh, most of the redwoods are fire tolerant. They're, they're tolerant of low uh, level ground fire. And they quite frequently, they lived and existed with fire. When, when Europeans showed up, they noticed all these beautiful groves of redwoods growing in the grass. And all kinds of elk were out there grazing and deer and so on. Uh, and so immediately, in order to protect the forest, we've got to prevent fires. And so fire exclusion for at least 50 years uh, in the US was the policy on how to deal with forests is, is prevent all fires. Well then what happened of course is all these uh, other species come in. These are the replacement species for the redwoods when they eventually come down. Well now if you light these on fire, the fire will climb right up and then go to the top of the redwoods and burn those. So it's actually set up a, a, a pretty dangerous situation for, for a lot of these uh, larger older trees that as long as it's a low-level ground fire, they're fine, they're fire tolerant, but if it's a crown fire, you know, all bets are off. So excluding disturbance is its own kind of disturbance. It sets up its own new type of criteria. Now, I'm not saying this is right and this is wrong. What we need to do is we need to understand that there are differences here than here. And if this was our, our place, we have certain options available to us and certain tools and techniques that we should use in order to interact with this system in, in a way that helps this system to thrive. If we have this system here, we have a different set of management practices that we would use in order to accomplish our objectives. And which ones we use, that's up to us and we'll figure that out through time. And it, there's things with disturbances is they all interact with one another and the complexity layers get pretty uh, weird. You're not always able to tell what exact thing uh, caused the official disturbance. Here's a, a disturbance, a single pine tree. This is a Korean nut pine. It lived 10 or 15 years and then all of a sudden, pfft, that was it. It just quit. Was it ice damage that broke branches that allowed fungus to get in there? And then the fungus weakened the tree and then because the tree was weak, was it not able to survive insect damage? And then uh, because it was insect damages, did it not survive the drought? You know, who knows what killed the tree? The tree died, there was a disturbance that happened. All these different multiple disturbance, disturbances interacted with one another. So when I go out, as some of those pictures up above, and I thin the black locust out of my chestnuts, I know that. I'm removing the black locust, I know I'm going to have the chestnuts behind, they're going to dominate the site a little bit more, a little bit better, they'll gain a little bit because they have more water, more nutrients, more light for them. I also know that the locust is going to re-sprout and then that sets up a new management issue and how do I deal with the re-sprouts. And then how I deal with the re-sprouts sets up new management issues, which sets up new management issues. They all compound each other and we have to learn how to deal with this complexity. Um, if, you, if you know how to paddle a, uh, a canoe or a kayak in white water, white water kayaking, we can't change what the river is doing but with a little bit of skill and a little bit of knowledge, we can steer our kayak pretty effortlessly in that stream. Now, most plant communities don't start from scratch from the bare rock like I've showed a couple different times and in, our, in the, uh, in the um, videos, the specialty videos that, that we shoot, um, I deal with that extensively with the lichen uh, and the mosses and grasses and so on. Most plant communities are going through some sort of secondary um, succession where there was a plant community there then some kind of disturbance set it back, and then it starts succession over again. The biological legacies are the organisms that are left behind from the pre-disturbance state. 
So you see here, this is a site in California that in the um, late 1800s was cleared for timber, obviously, and planted to grass to raise horses. This is actually from the, um, from the ranch where the prize-winning horse Seabiscuit was raised. And there's these groves of uh, redwoods. This one's probably, only, this is small and about 10 or 12 foot across at the base, pretty big tree. Um, so these things will be able to reseed the site. All the brush and associated trees with it can recolonize the site when disturbance out here stops. It's getting noisy out in the hallway there. Um, most disturbances are patchy. They aren't, uh, you know, uniform all throughout it. And this is uh, two different pictures of different places where forest fires had raged through this, this mountainous area. And anywhere where you see I like this dark green here. For some reason, the fire didn't burn those trees. Why? We don't necessarily know. There's a, there's a lot of randomness that has to do with it. Randomness is, uh, I think, more significant than people are willing to admit because a lot of researchers like things to be statistically neat, and randomness doesn't always compute. But uh, you don't have no idea why. So these biological legacies are left behind. They're a refugia from which the system can re re reconstitute itself. And human disturbances are still disturbances. From an ecologist's point of view, from our point of view, uh, we are not exempt from uh, how this planet works. Just because we cut down all the trees and scratched off all the dirt and bulldozed it all up and mined off all the ore and left toxic waste piles doesn't mean that that site wasn't disturbed. It was. It used to be all this intact, contiguous forest that had probably at one point in time experienced fire or wind or earthquake or volcanism or something that disturbed it along the way you know, grazing and browsing by animals. We're just another kind of disturbance. And uh, because of the scale of our, uh, and the ability of our machines to, to do a tremendous amount of work, uh, our disturbances can be really, really impressive these days, uh, pretty huge. And agriculture, I think, is one of, the, uh, one of the most significant disturbances that humans have perpetrated on our environment. And the fact that annual agriculture has only been around for the past 10,000 years or so. And there are some places it used to be either you know, grassland or forest that were cleared, plowed up, disturbed for agriculture, and have been under, under tillage, under agriculture, for 4,000 years. And actually there's uh, places, speaking of opportunity, uh, a few slides back, Union of Concerned Scientists uh, has data showing that within five degrees of the equator, there was, ah, what's the number? I think it was 95 million square miles of land that used to be tropical forest, either monsoon forest or rainforest, that was clear-cut, planted to annual agriculture for a few years until it was no good anymore, washed away and oxidized, and abandoned. 195 to 100 million square miles of cheap real estate that we can revegetate into you know, restoration agriculture paradises. What an incredible resource. And what an incredible need. The need is great for us to go out. Why? Shouldn't we go to these sites and quote-unquote reclaim them, but do it at a profit because they're setting up profitable business ventures producing, you know, oils, industrial ingredients, food, fuel, medicines. Um, and one of Wayne's um, companies um, pioneered the practice of doing this in, uh, in a constructed environment in brownfields, going to toxic waste sites, cleaning it up, rehabbing, refurbishing buildings, and um, upgrading the, uh, the quality of the real estate for resale. That's exactly what I've been doing with restoration agriculture for the past 30 years. Buying degraded property for cheap, 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 restoring ecological processes and systems, 
while uh, planting the uh, trees, shrubs, bushes, and vines that will produce yields that I can harvest and sell to pay the bills. Now, physical legacies left after disturbance, so the, the biological legacies are all the different plants uh, and animal communities that survive the disturbance. The physical legacies are uh, things like bare soil, like that uh, mudslide I showed you, um, <clears throat> rearranged mineral soil, um, and new microtopography, little changes. And if we look down here right now, this is uh, just taken uh, this past weekend up in Minnesota after the big blowdown on uh, Thursday. And these, these uh, microtopography changes, these little uh, piles, all this organic matter, all this stuff now creates a new, new growing media for everything else. The physical legacies are as important as um, biological legacies. Wind is one of the more significant disturbances out there. We'll deal, have, have to deal a lot with wind on our site whether we want to or not. And wind, we're, we're not really able to change too much about it. We have to be able to adapt to it and adapt our management to it. This is a picture taken from one of my favorite places in uh, Sawyer, Michigan. At the Warren Dunes State Park. And these sand dunes are some 200, 300 foot tall. And it's beautiful. We can go through the successional pathway from sand that's never had any vegetation on it all the way through the grasses, the shrubs, the bushes, uh, to just on the other side of these um, uh, sand dunes, there's old growth uh, oaks and beach, and about a quarter of a mile inland, there's probably the largest stand of old growth beach uh, east of the, or probably anywhere in North America, I don't know. Um, gigantic three, four foot diameter beech trees, smooth as can be, beautiful trees. Uh, so the wind has shaped the, the land itself physiographic effect, big, huge dune-shaped. Um, a lot of the driftless area in southwest Wisconsin doesn't have drift, and drift was from the melting glaciers and then the wind blowing it like drifts. Uh, here we are, this is a picture of uh, the <laughs> backside of my wife Jen in the front of a canoe uh, on Nelson Lake up in uh, Boundary Waters Canoe area. And uh, what we see here, it's kind of hard to detect unless you know what you're looking for, but you see all these white stems, these bare white stems. The top of this ridge didn't have much wind damage. The bottom didn't have much wind damage, but the middle third, all the way from over here, all the way across, all these stems, almost every single aspen and birch, uh, as far as the eye can see, just snapped right off at about 12 feet off the ground. And what, what, can, what you can do is you can observe the, the damage that happened by the winds to do a little detective work to figure out how the wind interacted with that site. And what you can see here, these clouds, how they're, see how they're flat on the bottom? They're riding, uh, going uh, eastward, kind of northeastwardly here, and they're sitting on top of this pocket of warm air that's over these lakes. And in the upper Midwest, as that, the warm uh, surface area gets hot, can hold a lot more moisture. The, these little clouds can build up in the cumulus clouds and the gigantic cumulonimbus clouds, and then they hit the upper atmosphere. They get too cold, too heavy. They crash down as rain, thunder, and lightning. And evidently, the winds were coming so strong across here that as it as it came across a somewhat flat landscape, it suddenly dropped down. And there was an eddy current. So this whole section of trees, the trees were actually snapped up, even though wind was blowing this way. 
It's like water pouring across a waterfall. This is a hydraulic. Um, this is just an aerial photograph. This was in one of the newspapers um, up there in Two Harbors of uh, Minnesota. Just zillions and zillions and zillions of trees down. Uh, this is also from a newspaper. This was uh, Forest Service clearing one of the um, one of the portages. If you can imagine, there's hundreds of people that are out there in the wilderness that have somehow survived this windstorm. Well, some are obviously some perished, and some were severely injured and had to be evacuated by people through this this uh, this air this these portages between lakes, and uh, they had however many other people that just wanted to get the heck out because it was a bad experience. So when we went in, they'd, some of the more major portages uh, uh, they had cleared, there were two portages that we went across that, that had all kinds of uh, debris across it. You'll see some of the pictures we took. One of the most widespread examples of uh, how wind affects the, the micro, micro topography is pit and mound uh, topography. The wind blows, uh, the tree falls over, it rips a pit, and then the, the root ball, what we would call a root ball in the uh, landscaping trade, it's called a root plate in uh, ecology and forestry, it uh, is, remains behind. That becomes, over time, as it decays and erodes in the rain, it becomes a mound. Now, those of you guys who are uh, diehard permies and know me that I'm a swila, I like my swiles and bands. This is perfect example of a swale and a burn. When we're doing a water management strategy, making a depression and a uh, and a mound, we are imitating this effect, the micro micro uh, physiographic effect of pit and mound topography. So, when the trees are uprooted, uh, it's most common on shallow soils, rocky soils, real sandy soils, uh, soils with a restrictive layer like a hard pan layer, iron pan, clay pan, a certain layer uh, level deep. But like down in um, uh, lowland swampy areas, if all of a sudden for some reason beavers build a new uh, lodge and flood out this low area, the soil becomes anaerobic, the trees die and their roots, uh, their roots rot and then they fall over, there's pit and mound on the flats, that's more likely to happen on anaerobic soils. This is actually a photograph of one of the campsites that we stayed at. Um, had a lot of a lot of damage. We we were there after the blowdown, not during it. Thank goodness. And then as the tree falls, uh, it rips up the soil with it. Depression is the pit, and the the root mass itself becomes the mound. This one, look at the shape of that. How incredibly sharp that angle is. This was almost a perfect wedge shape. And what it was is over in this rock here. There's this crack. And these, uh, these pine trees somehow got established in the duff in the crack and grew for years, probably looks like 20, 30 years old at least. And their roots that were not able to penetrate in any crack at all. And they were just totally within this little wedge-shaped thing. And it was the weight of the soil. Well, what soil? The soil that the biology created around itself through the successional process that just stood that tree up. And one little blow, you could actually have picked this tree up if you had a, a big enough grabber. I just carried it away. It was like taking it right out of a flower pot. Now the upthrown root in the soil mass forms a mound adjacent to the pit. So our pits and mounds, the most common form of, of uh, micro topography change with wind damage. So here we've got uh, just off screen below is the uh, pit and here is the mound. <clears throat> the size of these uh, pits and mounds is determined by the, the soil conditions, the, the tree size, rooting habit, uh, 1998, I think it was, we had a lot of rain and a lot of big oak trees came down 
and they brought with them this big, huge, round glob in, in Wisconsin. It was a real heavy clay soil that they brought with uh, up here in Boundary Waters. The soil is relatively new. It's only been out of the ice for a few thousand years, and it's solid rock. Just sometimes, you know, there is no soil at all, and everything's just growing on the solid rock like, rock like the last one. This root mass here was, was uh, attached to a gigantic pine tree, maybe two feet diameter, and the height from the bottom of that root, root, uh, um, root mat to the top, easily 20 feet. It was, it was huge, just as a gigantic, huge root plate. That's what they call it. <clears throat> now what happens is at these sites, um, it's, it's no longer a uniform strata. What, what's happened, the tree falls down, it lifts up all these rock, all the soil, and debris, and then it all gets mixed together from the erosive effects of rain and as these roots rot. This is interesting. This was on the same campsite that uh, had a lot of wind damage this storm. This is probably from uh, 1998, 1998, I think it was, um, when there was a huge blowdown straight line wind up in uh, Boundary Waters and just knocked this one over. You see the trees started to rot. There's a lot of organic matter accumulating down in the soil. What happens now is you have a whole new uh, set of sites that weren't there before. This can only provide so much uh, rooting site for various different plants. Certain plants can't get established in here. They need some bare mineral soil to get, it, uh, get established. Well, they have it down here. And if we look in the bottom of the pit, we see this perfect little example. We've got this little mulch collecting, collecting pit, and these little uh, tiny pine trees got established, and all the needles now fall around them and, and mulch them nicely. We've got some stones in here for some mechanical protection. If they get stepped on by a moose, it'll be protected. Uh, the pit and mound system is part of how uh, forests regenerate. So swales and berms are imitating this pit and mound system. It'll obviously be moister in the bottom of the pits, uh, drier on other sites. <clears throat> As the uh, dead roots decompose, the organic matter minerals come mixed together. You watch those rocks all tumble down. It's now mixed together. And think about that. Um, we're told, it's actually just a few days ago in one of the permaculture press things, talked about how important it was to never, never, never turn the soil because um, turning the soil is evil and it destroys it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's not really what nature says. Uh, every once in a while, like this, look at that. All of these rocks and all that soil has been dug up from two or three feet deep, lifted to six foot high, and allowed to mix through time. Sometimes it's appropriate to go ahead and mix the soil and on, on these solid rocks where there's hardly any soil to, be, to begin with, to start mixing the mineral soil with the organic matter, you'll have more uh, active sites uh, going on where life can work on the rocks. You can have more acids exuded, more fungi, more of the, more of the minerals can come into, uh, come into the bodies of the fungus and lich lichens. You will actually accelerate the creation of a highly mineralized fertile topsoil with the proper amount of disturbance and mixing. Um, how nature does it, it's on its own time scale. That's not necessarily optimizing creation of uh, thick topsoil, rich topsoil, but look at the color over here. It's a nice, dark, rich topsoil. And then we mix it together with more minerals, and it can begin the process again. More organic matter mixed in there. There's some oxygen mixed in there, some water down the bottom. We're creating a healthy, rich soil where there was rock before. Just looking at this picture, which part of this will likely to be hotter? Hello, looks like the sun over here. It's very parched, very dry, hardly anything established there. 
down on the bottom, it's uh, very dark, humid, moist. Um, probably there's puddles there, and so many plants can't get established because it's too wet. And when that ice freezes, expands, and contracts, it can destroy a lot of plants down here. Now, there's this little sweet spot on this particular mound um, where there's a lot of vegetation that's gotten established. We've got some balsam fir moving in here over here as well. And so what we have to do, instead of just uh, saying that we'll dig our swales and our berms and you always plant plants here or you always you know, put you know, mulch here or not there uh, or you don't do um, swales and berms all together because they're stupid and unnecessary, they're imitating a natural process. Uh, they create these differing microsites, and the different microsites will be, uh, if this was facing east, this would probably be different than if it was facing north, than if it was facing west. Uh, there are different conditions if this was mostly clay soil or very rocky, gravelly soil like it is here. The different orientations will affect it. Um, high rainfall versus low rainfall, sand, rock, clay, all these things affect it. They're all imitating natural processes, pit and mound architecture. What's uh, fascinating here is, once again, we get these old ones next to it. Not everything, uh, not all of the wind effects um, will totally uproot the trees. We have an old uprooted one. This was from two or three slides ago with the little, with the little pines in the, in the, uh, in the pit. Uh, and then on top of it, a lot of these balsam fir come up, but then look over here, we got a white pine. This white pine is probably in the pit of the previous blowdown. This site was incredible. There was uh, hundreds of years worth of pileup of trees blowing down and falling over on this site. Why on earth anybody from Forest Service would think that this is a good place to put a campsite and drop trees on people? I don't know why. Now, of course, the decaying tree itself is its own microsite. That organic matter on the ground is not going to waste. There's a whole host of organisms that live almost exclusively in this wood. All these lichens are, are, are taking any uh, unavailable nutrients and minerals in this, uh, in this wood and turning it into biomass. Mushrooms are amazing is that they can take cellulose, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and somehow magically convert it into proteins, and I don't exactly know the process of that. And so you can take all these different proteins, now it becomes food for people, let's inoculate down logs with fungus of our choice. And look, we got little trees established. Certain trees like uh, eastern hemlock, for example, redwood is another. Uh, a lot of the coastal uh, Pacific Northwest, um, coastal uh, cedars, yellow cedars, etc., western hemlock, um, prefer to sprout on rotten, rotten wood as well. <clears throat> so that decaying tree holds a lot of water like a sponge. The leaf litter mulches the newly established trees. And what you got to see here, this is pretty dramatic, look at the shape of the land here, okay? And then all of a sudden there's like this little lump, and this way. This right here is the remains of a once upon a time ginormous tree that fell over and has begun to rot. And then you can see subsequent blowdowns knocked more trees over, and more trees over, and these are the most recent ones knocked over. Um, here's some other ones that got blown over. Uh, this whole entire site is, is nothing but a wind site. Wind is the disturbance regime on the site. It just blows the trees down, blows the trees down, over and over and over again. Gaps in the canopy now allow the extra light in, just like I did with a chainsaw. Uh, it allows more rainfall, more light into the understory. Reflected light is, uh, is quite significant, too. So re reflected light will come into the system, bounce up in underneath, and, and affect foliage over in here. These little trees now that somehow had gotten established in the last disturbance, 
boom, the overstory is removed. They now got full sun. They grow like crazy. Um, and these are, are mostly balsam fir and white spruce, and they require full sun to grow. So that disturbance now provided an opportunity for them. Now, on your property, let's say you have some very valuable plants here, like my, my chestnuts. They're somewhat shade tolerant. They'll be all right, but they can't grow completely closed in. So when the black locust starts to shadow over them, I go in and I remove the black locust, I open up this pocket, boom, and then it'll give an extra kick of growth to my chestnut trees. Um, now wind is interesting and it tends to remove the overstory trees. I showed you that picture along the, the shore where all the birch trees were snapped. Uh, a lot of the, the fir and spruce, they tend to snap and they, they fall over quite easily. Uh, white pine is kind of uh, in the middle. It has a tendency to um, all of a sudden shred its branches. A branch will just snap right off, and you have a ship mast with a couple of squizzly branches sticking out of it. So you can see here, somehow this one, uh, you know, white pine managed to survive year after year after year after year of blowdown on this site, and just stand there. All the stuff falls down and rots and decays, and just stands there, raises up its branches up above the whole scene, and hopefully some of its seeds will land in some of the mineral soil. Uh, in one of the pits and mounds. Fire, on the other hand, tends to remove the understory. Now this is a picture of a uh, two-year-old fire uh, site in um, near Ely, Minnesota, south of Ely, Minnesota, and notice how it really removed the understory. Uh, pines, hemlocks are, are similar to redwoods-like uh, in, in that they can handle light uh, ground-level fires and, they'll, and they won't burn and perish. Uh, balsam fir and spruce, they tend to, you know, even when a light ground fire goes by, it'll kill the tree. Balsam fir is amazing because it has these little sap bubbles in the bark that'll just kind of burst and explode, and they're extremely flammable, extremely flammable. This is the same, you know, same site as this one here. This is a two-year-old fire recovery site. Now, what I like to point out here is look how, look how the grasses have really thrived. You go, all of a sudden, you get a fire that comes through, you're some of the first ones that respond to grass. So now we know that this is a natural process. There was a perhaps wind throw came through here and knocked a whole bunch of trees down. So we see this going on. Well, then some kind of a light fire goes through, leaves an overstory. This looks like a silvopasture system. Now we have opportunities for grazing in here. We can introduce a new, uh, a new variable, a uh, new type of disturbance into our system, grazing, and we'll talk about that in a future webinar. Um, some of the most beautiful trees I've ever seen are in these um, fire-dependent understory cleared situations. This is in a, uh, on a small, uh, small spot up in the, um, up in the, near the Boundary Waters called, of all places, white pine. Gigantic uh, four or five hundred year old uh, white pine trees. Now here's an interesting situation we saw earlier with the uh, redwoods. Um, we have an understory that's grown up right almost up to the underside of the canopy of the story up above it. And this poses a little bit of a challenge. If this is a, a, a natural system here, such as it is in Minnesota, if a fire comes through, the fire has nothing preventing it from climbing all the way up this vegetation, starting all the way down here, gigantic catastrophic ground fire. So if I have a piece of property that looks like this, and I live anywhere near a place that has any wildfire, whether we're in a dry area or a moist area, I mean, in California, if you're not managing your place for fire, um, you must be on something that's legal in Colorado because uh, fire is part of the natural ecosystem. And if you want to defend your resource, your life, your food system, you will go ahead and manage to protect yourself from fire. 
this is a prescription for, for a disaster. Um, if wind comes through there, it's not a big deal, It'll knock everything down. Um, and if uh, a fire comes through there, it's just going to climb and destroy everything. So what we want to do is we go through and we can act as the wind. And we can remove understory trees here uh, and thin out how many overstory trees we have left, imitate the effects of fire, and have some grazing going on underneath. We have acted as a disturbance, and we're patterning our behaviors after how wind affects the system and how fire affects the system. We don't want that. That is not, that's not a good thing for, you, for your property, no matter where you live. <clears throat> okay. <coughs> so it's, it's as much the disturbance regime that drives succession um, as it is the plant communities themselves. And you can, you can learn the, the type of disturbance regime of a site by just looking at the, the, the legacies that are there, the stumps, the torn uh, material, the pits, the mounds, uh, the patterns, broken branches on trees. And if you look at this here, we've got these young balsam firs in the background are all in a line on an old rotten body of a tree that's on top of another old rotten body of a tree. These are all in a line that sprouted on a rotten tree. And here's another one and another one and then this is one from just Thursday. So this is, this is probably 100 years, 200 years maybe of, of evidence of what has been going on at, at this site. That the uh, trees have grown up, a wind comes through, knocks a whole bunch down, there's pit and mound architecture going on, some stragglers survive. Most likely white pine in this particular area because it just shreds its branches and stands up like a ship mast and doesn't put up a big target to the wind. And we can see this in the landscape. Look all around here, uh, most of the birches in this area have been uh, shredded in the recent windstorm. All the green, the light green that you see under here is the balsam fir in that understory, happy for the release. Up grow these birches and aspens, boom, their tops get ripped off, they snap right off, the balsam firs dominate the site. Well then, balsam firs aren't very wind strong, what's going to happen next? Another wind comes through knocks all those trees down, and some of the pines managed to hang on and survive. Uh, some actually were in a thick clump. That clump hasn't been thinned by wind yet, but now if you look at it after this disturbance last Thursday, they're pretty exposed, and I bet you there's going to be a few of them. They've had their roots weakened. They're a little wobbly. We get a couple more blows this summer. They're going to start to drop out and thin, and so you'll end up with a forest uh, canopy here, that's the, the birches and, the, and there's maples and poplars um, and fir and spruce uh, in the mix with that whole canopy layer uh, all having different responses to the wind. The birches and poplars snap, they sprout again from the roots while, that, while the fir and the spruce occupy the site. Well then the fir and the spruce grow over and the birch are there for a while and they blow over. Meanwhile there's fewer and fewer but larger and larger white pines that are the emergent layer in this uh, forested system. And you can see here how some of these larger ones got thinned out. There'll be fewer and fewer trees, but larger and larger. Uh, and notice how skinny, that's a very narrow wind pattern, how they just break their branches off at the side. Try dragging a canoe through this stuff. This was a blast, by the way. Um, the smells were amazing uh, of, of all of the, the pine and spruce and fir. Um, just a phenomenal amount of, uh, of trees down. There's another gigantic, this is probably 10 or 15 foot tall uh, root ball, root mass. And it, and it looks like a crazy mess, but all this understory, there's a lot of understory that's um, a very fire um, 
fire tolerant, such as raspberries and blueberries and service berries and hazelnut, uh, beaked hazelnut up in this particular area. There's a reasonable amount of oak in this area as well. All of that understory will thrive for the next few years until the next disturbance comes along, be it fire, be it wind. Look at this old guy. It's been there for how many different windstorms has this thing seen go by? And so I think these are these are uh, beaked hazel in the foreground. We've got some maple over here, up over here. And then I think this is my last slide um, on this particular island here. Some of the things that we also see with the wind is the long-term trend. And if by looking at this picture, you see all of the trees, the larger trees, leaning to the left. Uh, some of these like this here, the only branches that have survived are the ones on the leeward side. So anything that was facing the wind got ripped off and snapped and broken. Uh, and the whole tree is a general lean. Uh, a lot of the lean isn't always just the uh, uh, catastrophic winds that do that. A lot of that is during the growing season when the, the uh, candle, the, the new growth is growing. Uh, many of the trees on my farm, New Forest Farm, they actually lean to the north, even though our prevailing wind is like southwesterly and northwesterly. It's like, well, why do they point north? Well, during the growing season, when they're the most tender and green and flexible, there's a south, the hot south wind is blowing them north just enough to kind of keep them there for a month or so. So this actually may be a result of just long-term, slow, steady winds, and it just keeps bending when it's, when it's flexible and growing. Or a lot of it might be from the catastrophic uh, blowdowns like happened last week. And so we see a little bit of legacy uh, here that's going on. This was probably, once upon a time, a bare rock site. Went through primary succession. Uh, the lightest seeds would have come in first would have been willow and aspen and birch. Uh, that these little tiny seeds can float in the wind. They land on the bare rock or the, the place that the lichens have kind of prepared. They start to grow. Well, they're not very wind fast. They, they blow over periodically, but that's okay. They sprout from the roots. They send up root suckers in the aspens and willows, send up root suckers pretty soon. They colonize the whole site. Um, when one blows over, there's a little bit of a, a pit and mound architecture. Pine also has very small seeds. They kind of blow in, and pine can start to dominate that site. And over time, all the wind <clears throat> um, susceptible trees, like the spruce and the balsam, and the birch, and the aspen, and the willow, they all snap or they fall and the pine come to dominate the overstory and are left behind. So once again, here's a several hundred years, just by looking at this and understanding disturbance pattern of this area, um, we can understand the history and what actually happens on a site. <clears throat> so if we're going to be observing uh, long and protracted observation instead of a lot of senseless work, um, it's prudent for us to understand how to read the legacies of this landscape and understand what that tells us about the disturbance regime, how that disturbance regime affects the plant communities that we're going to be using when we set up a restoration agriculture system on this place. So the first type of disturbance that I spent a lot of time on was wind. We're going to spend a significant amount on fire and a whole bunch of different other disturbances uh, next week. But for now, I guess what we can do is we can open this up. Um, for questions, I guess I do have a few more slides. What's interesting about it, the site conditions determine now how the genes in those plants express. If it's a particularly hot and dry site, like here on this bare rock, uh, only the ones that can really survive these harsh conditions will be able to do that. If, if it 
doesn't have to survive that kind of drought. It can use, use extra water. This isn't getting very much water. It'll start to express these genes. These ones, children, will propagate instead of these ones, children. Can't survive this kind of cold weather and you freeze and die in the wintertime, you don't get to reproduce uh, next, next season. So the site conditions are also part of our breeding program and they will, they will be guiding us, uh, so back to this picture here, by understanding the history of this place, by reading its legacies, by the legacy landforms, the legacy biology, and then by understanding the disturbance regime and how the disturbance regime affected the, the plant communities that we're going to use, we now know how to adapt our breeding program to work with this particular disturbance regime and to uh, select more quickly the species or the, the, uh, the individual varieties that will thrive on those, uh, in those conditions with sheer uh, a total utter neglect. I almost said my word wrong. And back to plant migration, we also have a certain responsibility now to, to uh, advance plant migration forward. Here is that grove of butternuts that I talked about briefly last week uh, up in Maine in a very uh, wind-driven and actually harvest-driven disturbance regime. Uh, these sites, uh, Maine, northeastern Maine, has been harvested for almost 200 years, uh, you know, <laughs> over and over and over again. And what has determined the forest of today is who's been able to survive the kind of logging we were doing at the time. Um, but this is the same. It's, it's instead of uh, white spruce, it's a lot of red spruce, a lot of balsam fir, a lot of birch, a lot of uh, aspen. Um, there's beech in here as well. So we throw in these new species, these new walnut species, that uh, we knew automatically by the plant communities that were here and by the legacies that were here that it's a, a very um, a wind thrashed site and we are going to expect that this will behave in such a manner uh, that there will be a lot of wind <clears throat> um, disturbance. So there will be a lot of removal of the birch and the aspen. So if we go in and remove the birch and aspen, and have our butternut stand behind and, and take the brunt of the wind. They're fairly well anchored. They're a sturdy tree. Uh, we will go out ahead and remove the stuff that the wind hasn't removed, if it hasn't done it in a timely manner. And then we will make sure that the brush layer is clear so we're taking care of what the fire would be taking care of by keeping the ground level, ground level open. And so we can take plant communities from out of zone, move them forward, and treat them the way to be treated in order to survive that site. Um, in order to end up with a farm like this, ecologically sound, economically profitable. Thank you folks for uh, bearing with me tonight. And Stephanie, if you want to uh, do the questions thing, if you're there. She went to sleep. <laughs> oh, there you are. Hi, Mark. Um, doesn't look like we have too many questions. Um, everybody out there, let us know if you have any questions. We have the time to answer it. What I did see, um, Ray has a question for you and asked, would it be okay to contact you on your website for a question? <laughs> Maybe you should ask that question on the website. <laughs> yeah, sure, <laughs> absolutely. Well, see, the thing is, on the website, I might not get it. It might be, um, you know, Karen is dealing mostly with um, trees, trees and shrub sales and questions like that. Jeffrey is dealing mostly with questions on um, uh, scheduling and you know, Wayne deals with other questions, you deal with other questions, so, you, you know, they might not get to me. The way to do it is now, you got me live, ask a question. Right? <laughs> okay. Plenty of people to ask questions, too. Sure. 
Oh, looks yep. like we got another one. Along with your book, what other books would you recommend to learn about ecological succession? Well, let me. Uh, how fast can I zip through here? <laughs> right back to the to the beginning of this webinar here. Um, the one I really really like uh, uh, because of its depth and and come on intensity is the big one right there to the lower left. I think it is. Oh, gee, it's a long way back, isn't it? Don't get dizzy and fall off your seat, people. Um, <laughs> that one, forest ecology. You know, there's numerous different editions. What it is is, is it's it's uh, it's the introductory forest ecology uh, undergraduate level text that it's uh, updated continuously by you know committee and people submit papers to it all the time. This this is I'd say is the basic. Uh, fundamental understanding part of it. And understanding your disturbance regime where you are, <clears throat> just learn a little bit about the weather. Um, are you in an earthquake zone? Are you in a volcano area? Um, are there a lot of, like where, where I'm at in southwest Wisconsin, it's more individual trees will get struck by lightning and die, or a tornado goes through and rips out a little path in the woods, so it's more smaller scale disturbances. And there are the, you know, wind can be devastating across hundreds of square miles, or it can be just this little microburst that knocks down a few trees. And, it, and the disturbance happens at all of those scales. So to look at the, the vegetation that's existing in your place right now and understand what happened to it to get it in that particular, um, that's as instructive as reading any book. I'd recommend just this book and then um, uh, observe, observe, observe. That's my favorite. Favorite, uh, right there, look at that, see, observation. Other questions? Well, I'll get everybody dizzy looking at these pictures again. <laughs> these well, these yeah. are nice, you just, if you just go online and, and look at all these different things about succession, the thing is, some of it uh, has elements that are not true. One of the, in, in how I could tell you which ones are which, uh, I can't get into that now. So you got to just watch out. That's why I recommended that, that text because it's all peer-reviewed and stuff like that. One of the things that really bothered me <clears throat> is it was just last week that one of the major permaculture um, educational publications put out this thing on how, how you, know, you build good soil by not disturbing it. Well, in places, yes, that's true. But when you start mixing the mineral soil with this, it's like composting. Um, let it develop a little bit more. You have more mixing with the minerals and the organic matter. More life is acting on it. You keep it ramped up in high gear and then do some mixing again. So a strategic mixing like nature does with this pit and mound here um, through movement of sand dunes. My goodness, how often is the soil getting mixed? This is a natural, perfectly natural, perfectly normal way to build soil. Can also include a certain degree of, of Actually disturbing the soil and mixing mixing it around. So, anyways, whatever. What other question? I have one more for you. It says, "How has your training as an engineer influenced your understanding of ecology?" I sense it's been very influential. <laughs> well, I had all kinds of wise guy comments that I was just going to make about that, um, but the engineering thing for me is. Uh, I wanted to know how things work, and then I wanted to like make things that would, you know, tools that would help me get by easier. 
but when I went to engineering school, what they wanted to do was train me to be a good uh, employee and learn how to make better door handles for Volkswagens or something like that. And it's like that's not what I wanted to do. Actually, I got into to helmets because I want to help people with severe head trauma and all that kind of whatever. And I ended up just being a lab rat, you know, smashing helmets to see, well, gee, yep, broke that one, these many pounds. Oh, well, broke, broke that one, yep, these many pounds. And it was just, um, uh, it wasn't any fun. So how has it affected uh, my understanding of ecology? I think uh, part of it is that intensity and that desire to understand how things work. And just looking at this picture right here, you have, you know, you have that tree that blew down. You've got this, this mound. You've got this pit. This is fascinating. I could look at this and just totally get off on this for hours and hours and hours because look at all of the different amazing things that are happening here that we can talk about. We've got some primary succession going on with the lichen on the rock and the moss, and then we've got this debris blowing in. We've got the decomposition going on. There's fungal mycelia kind of going through this whole thing. The fungus is now going to be, you know, propagating all through the wood, decaying the wood, obviously decaying wood up here. This is an amazing, an amazing thing. I think the, the engineering uh, isn't what got me to be so uh, enthralled with ecology. Uh, maybe it's my natural curiosity and the, the fact that that right there fascinates the dickens out of me. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah, I'd rather do that than go chase Pokemon any day of the week. Just look at that. <laughs> did that. I think I successfully avoided answering that question, didn't I? <laughs> Come on, look at that. Isn't that look at this. There's like, there's like a thousand years worth of history in there. And it's all related to wind, and it's all related to these species, how they've interacted with wind on a, on a site that's on a bare rock in, in northern Minnesota. It's amazing. So, question. Awesome. Well, we are a little bit over the hour, but I'll throw this last question out there. Um, we have one person wondering if, he says, plant migration is based on trends of climate change. Is it a risk if trends change for your own property? <laughs> the risk is to not um, be trying things in all different directions. The risk is to say, well, we don't know which way things are going. I've got uh, one side of my property, I've gone northern with it, and I'm planting a lot of boreal, subboreal species on that side of it. It's more north-facing, it's, it's colder already, shadier. Then I've got on my southwest bony rocky slope, I've got a lot of things from uh, mountainous Colorado regions um, going into the hotter, drier uh, side of things. I'm playing with both. Uh, we don't know which way things are going to spin out here. Um, uh, <laughs> it's been so humid in Wisconsin and so wet in Wisconsin, I've just been wondering why don't we just start making coal swamps and start getting into the coal production business by damming up these these uh, valleys, growing trees, then dropping a couple trees in order to flood the valley two feet deep and all the trees fall over, then we grow more trees on those and just keep filling the valley up full of these rotten logs. We've got more carbon in the atmosphere. This is the Carboniferous all over again. And don't think for a minute that all this coal was made by these plants just growing peacefully and falling over when they were old and dying. All of the coal deposits were made by plants and animals living in ecological systems that were impacted by disturbance. Um, so yeah, I would I would experiment in both different directions, but I wouldn't do that until I take care of now. Uh, establish your site, uh, set up your food system, and feed yourself now. Uh, 
plant enough so that you generate a surplus that's going to make it worth your while to harvest so then you can have extra dollars from the sale of product or gifts to friends and all that kind of stuff. Then start experimenting on the fringes with, uh, with different zones because we have no idea which way it's going really. Great answer, Mark. Well, since we are past the hour, I think we might just wrap things up. Thank you, everybody, for your engagement. Almost everybody stayed on to the very end. Um, any final thoughts, Mark? Well, uh, we're going to continue with succession next week, and if there's any major uh, successional events, actually, since we're going to talk a little bit about fire, if there's any, any fires anywhere nearby, somebody send me a line, and I'm going to go check them out, and we'll report live from the scene. Um, we'll see you next week. Thank everybody for being here. Thanks, everybody. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.